May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. And I want to draw your attention to our gospel reading today from Matthew chapter 5. Well, there are there are times as, as a preacher where you... Uh, tackle a text and you think, I just don't have the spiritual wisdom or insight or sensitivity to do justice to what's written. And I feel that way um, when, I, when I, I want to say something about the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Because here is the most holy man who ever walked the face of this earth. Um teaching us what it means to be holy. And he alone has fulfilled the, uh, the attitudes and the behaviors in a perfect way. And yet he's calling us, his children, his followers, to live like this. And it's, uh, it's humbling to read these words and to try to say something, uh, to, preach, to preach them in, in a way that conveys the... Um, the spirit in which they were first they were first given 2000 years ago but i'm going to try by the grace of god um and actually the lectionary gives us some time to to think about the beatitudes and the sermon on the mount for several weeks so this is going to be part one of the beatitudes and then i'll come back next week and talk about the beatitudes and then we get into the Sermon on the Mount for several weeks. And one way that we can approach these as, as Christians is to, to hold them up as a, as a mirror, as it were, to our own lives and say, you know what, are these attitudes and behaviors in my heart and in my life? And if not, then I make it a matter of repentance and I make it a matter of prayer so that I can grow in Christ-likeness. Um, one thing I said at the first service is that the key to growing in Christ-likeness is to stay close to Christ. Does that make sense? You know, you, to, to be more like Christ, you need to be influenced by Christ. And um, in order to grow in Christ-like character, uh, proximity to Jesus is the key. Whether we're starting out in the Christian life or we've been at it for some time, Stay close to Christ. Keep hearing his word. Keep praying to him. Keep gathering together with the body of Christ. Keep taking the sacraments. Stay close to Christ in order to grow to be like Christ. And there's no other way to do it, I don't think. This is not about, we're not going to read these and say, okay, now these are the resolutions that I'm going to make. And in my own strength, I'm going to pull myself up and I'm going to do this. I'm going to be this kind of a person. No. What Jesus calls us to here is, this is not just about being a nice person. It's being about a person who's reflecting something of the character of God. It's about growing into godliness. So there's a standard of, of character that the world has. And, and that's great to, to be a nice person, to work hard, to love your family. All that is good. But then there's this character that Christ is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And that requires massive amounts of grace to begin to even approximate these attitudes and behaviors. So in order to be like Christ, we have to stay close to Christ. And uh, the other thing, just by way of introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, is a very important point I want to make. And that is that these teachings are for disciples of Christ. Notice what it says in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, and we talked about how last week Jesus was growing in his fame because of his healing miracles. And so crowds were following him. But there were times where Jesus would withdraw from the crowds to be away with his father or to be away with the disciples. And this was one of those times there's a separation here. There's the crowds, and then Jesus separates from the crowds, goes up on the mountain, and he sits down with his disciples. And the disciples are the primary audience here. I'm not saying that other people weren't around, but Matthew wants to make it clear that this is for disciples. So here's the point. Here's the key. This is not the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes are not Jesus saying, okay, if you want to qualify as a disciple, here's what you've got to do. You earn your way onto this team by doing these things. No, they've already been called as disciples by the grace of God. And so it's not, here's how you earn your way onto the team as a disciple. It's now that I've called you onto the team and you've responded. Here's the character qualities that I want you to grow in. Okay, so it's, the, the, the good character and the good works follow from the fruit of grace and faith in Jesus. So that's important too. Okay, so this is not earning our way, but it's responding to the gracious call of God, staying close to him. So this kind of fruit begins to grow in our lives. And the character that Jesus calls us to, once again, is the character of godliness and of people who know God. And doesn't the world need people who are formed by knowing God and exhibiting this kind of character today? I think so. So uh, this this morning, we're going to just look at the first four Beatitudes and then pick up the next on next Sunday. And we start with the first one, which is the fundamental one or the essential one or the, the this is the doorway into to everything that follows. And it is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit. Is essential to be blessed by God. It could be translated and some translations have it as happy. Happy are those. Okay. And it can be translated that way as long as we don't make the mistake of thinking of happiness like we often do in our society, which is um, I'm in the good circumstances, there's no suffering, there's no pain, I'm not bothered by health issues, I'm happy. It's about my circumstances and my emotions. Okay. But happiness here is, is something much richer. It's a sense of, of well-being, of wholeness. And of deep satisfaction in God. And to be blessed means to be somebody who is favored by God. And if you know that you're favored by God, then no matter the circumstances, 
no matter what you're going through, then you have a sense of, of peace and satisfaction and wholeness, that it's going to go well with me. That, that's the sense of blessed. So highly favored by God are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Behind this word is, is the image of, and really it, it, it has to do with the Greek word itself, behind the Greek word itself is this image of somebody who is debased and who is in a position of begging. They're destitute. And think about beggars in Jesus' day. There was no social safety net. And so if you found yourself in a position of a beggar, somebody who's reduced to asking for alms and dependent upon the goodwill of another person, then that's your ultimate hope is the goodwill of somebody who's in a stronger position than you are. And so Jesus says, the person who comes to God like that in a position of a beggar, totally dependent upon God, that's the person who is blessed by God. And that is the person who, the kingdom, to whom the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven belongs. I think one great illustration of what this is getting at is Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember from Luke 18. The Pharisee came before God in prayer, not out of spiritual poverty, but out of spiritual pride. Bragging to God about how wonderful he was. And so he said to God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you, God, that I've not been unjust. I've not cheated on my wife. I've not defrauded other people. I thank you that I'm not like this guy over here, the wicked tax collector. And not only does he remind God of the things he hasn't done, but he reminds God of the spiritual works and the pious things that he is doing. I fast and I tithe all of my income. Twice a week, he says he fasted. So he's saying to God, God, aren't you lucky that I'm on your team? Not spiritual poverty, but spiritual pride. Not empty-handed, but, but coming to God with almost like a, like, a, like a bill and saying, you owe me, you, you owe me favor, you owe me salvation, you owe me blessing, because look at all that I've done for you. But then the tax collector, Jesus says, when he approached God, he didn't even look up, he looked down. And he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a what? A sinner. And Jesus says that was the one who came away from the presence of God, justified, right in the eyes of God. Because he was humbly confessing his sin and admitting his need for God's mercy. Spiritual poverty. How do you come before the presence of God? How do you approach God in prayer? When you think about meeting God at the end of this life, 
when you think about standing before the judgment seat of God, how will you approach him? Like the Pharisee saying, look at all that I've done. Or like the tax collector saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who exhibit spiritual poverty. There's that line in the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And it's from that position of spiritual poverty or humility that allows God to begin to work on our hearts and on our character. If we come to God full of our works, or if we come to him with full hands, then he can't put anything in. But we have to come to him in this place of humility and poverty and empty-handed. When we come to the communion table, we come like this with empty hands. It's a symbol of this spiritual poverty. An outward sign of something, hopefully, that's happening in our hearts. Well, that's the first beatitude. And then the second beatitude is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I used to... um, quote this oftentimes in the context of praying for those who are mourning over the death of a loved one. And I don't think that this excludes that, but I don't think that's the primary thing that Jesus is talking about here. I do think that these disciples that were following Jesus in the first century had a lot to mourn over because they were going to lose a lot by following Jesus. They were going to lose some of them family relationships, some of them maybe prosperity, and some of them were going to lose their lives. So to follow Jesus in the first century was very costly, and there were things to mourn over. And still today, in some places of the, in the world, it's very costly uh, to follow Jesus. And it's okay to mourn over those things, but to realize that there is comfort on the other side of the loss. There's restoration There's a comfort of God's presence and the hope of heaven. But I think more than those things, what really this is talking about is connected to the first beatitude. These these beatitudes are not put together in any haphazard sort of way. Um, John Chrysostom, the early church father and uh, preacher, great preacher, said that the, the beatitudes are like a golden chain. They're all connected. They flow logically And so I think the mourning here, primarily, it doesn't exclude what I've already said, but I think primarily it's connected to this poverty of spirit. So it's a mourning over spiritual poverty. It's a mourning over sin. And those who mourn over their spiritual poverty and over their sin are comforted by the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Godly grief. And I wonder if you have ever experienced something like godly grief over your your sin, over your own wickedness. 
remember one time during graduate school, I went on a silent retreat. It was part of this um, internship that I was in. And it was an internship actually about helping people who are studying theology discern their vocation and where they should go. So I was toying with the idea of going in the academic world, but also had this sense of maybe pastoral calling. So I had this wonderful opportunity to go on a silent retreat at a, um, a Catholic retreat center and had a spiritual director who led us in some spiritual exercises. And it was a silent retreat. There were a couple other people in graduate school going on this retreat with me. And um, we weren't silent, I'll tell you the truth, the whole time. There were times at night we would sneak away and, and talk. But for the most part, we were silent. And uh, that was a great privilege to go on that retreat to be led by an experienced spiritual director. And the exercises that we used focused a great deal on this matter of mourning over sin. Because the point of it was to understand what Jesus did on the cross for us and the great love that was displayed on the cross. And you can't really understand that until you understand the depths of your sin. You see what I'm saying here? The, 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 the wonder of grace is, is something that captures you when you realize the depths of sin, the, the mess you've been pulled out of. And I just remember a very significant Time there was sensing that it was my sin and, and this exercise has had ways of kind of discerning what's going on in your heart. It was my sin that led Jesus to the cross. It wasn't the first time I had thought that, but it just sort of really hit home in that context. And it, I experienced this mourning, but also the comfort that comes from the forgiveness of God. And I just wonder if you've experienced something like that in your life. Or you can remember a time you've experienced something like that. If not, I, I hope you make it a matter of prayer. That God would by his grace reveal your need for his comforting forgiveness. And, and really we can engage in this. It doesn't have to be dramatic and life changing of course. Yeah, this is something that we can do on a daily basis. We can come before God out of spiritual poverty, recognizing our need for his comfort, for his forgiveness, and confess our sins each and every day, asking God to give us this godly grief. The third beatitude is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And you just see this kind of... <laughs> This character developing, poor in spirit, those who are mourning over their own sin and those who are meek. What a contrast to what our culture says. <laughs> you need to be a self-assertive, self-promoting person. What a contrast. What does it mean to be meek? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, the background is the psalm that we read today, Psalm 37. Blessed are the meek, uh, the psalmist said, they shall inherit the land. And if you read that psalm, what David is, is praying about, what he's thinking about and writing about is that, 
There are people, he sees, that are evildoers and unjust people, and they're getting away with a lot of injustice and evil. And he's wondering, you know, why God is allowing this to happen and why the wicked prosper so much. And as he thinks about this, the temptation is, as it says, to fret, to fret, to worry about this and to get angry about this and to seek some sort of revenge and to take things into your own hands against those wicked, unjust people. And, uh, of course, there are times to do that and there are um, situations and, and there are positions in which God gives people when they're in a position of justice and such to work against evildoers. But here it's more about a personal struggle. And David is contemplating this and he is reminding himself that God is a God of justice and he'll take care of the evildoers in the end. And to trust in that and to not try to take things into his own hands. Trust in the Lord and he will act, the psalmist says in Psalm 37. Trust in God's time and God's justice and God's promises that the meek will inherit the land, ultimately. So meekness is not weakness. Meekness comes from a person who is strong in their trust in God's promises of justice. And a meek person understands who they are in light of God's holiness. And that's part of the meekness too, humility about oneself. And it's remarkable to think about Jesus saying this to the original audience, to his fellow Jews who are under oppression, under Roman rule, and in the air is this idea that we've got to take revenge. We've got to violently overthrow our our oppressors. No more meekness. No more trusting God. Let's take things into our own hands. And when the Jews tried that in the first century, they were squashed. They were squelched. Ultimately, Jerusalem fell because of the reaction against those religious zealots, those Jewish zealots who said, we must take things into our own hands. And Jesus is advocating another way, a way of meekness, which is a way of trusting in God's promises and God's ultimate justice. And I think one way we can apply this in our own lives is to think about when someone slights us or insults us, what path will we choose? The path of meekness says, you know what, I can let this go. And then there's the path of vengeance or retribution, which says, I'm going to get back at this person somehow. John Stott, in his commentary on the Beatitudes, talks about He says, I have no problem confessing to God my sins. You know, he's an Anglican, so he he says, I have no problem saying with the congregation that I am a miserable sinner. But he said, if somebody comes up to me at church and calls me a miserable sinner, I want to punch him in the nose. (laughs) Rubber hits the road there. But the person who is me can let some of that go. There is a time, once again, to correct the record and to stand up for oneself if there's injustice. But there's this attitude of, I'm just able to let some things go. 
not worth the fight. Why? Because I trust in God, I trust in his justice, I trust in his promise, and I know that I am a miserable sinner compared to the holiness of God. The fourth beatitude and the final one that we'll look at today is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hunger and thirst is, of course, a deep desire. And if you're hungry or thirsty, when you have that desire for drink or for food, there's hardly anything else you can think about except for fulfilling that desire. Hopefully you're not feeling that right now. <laughs> but this hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's a person who, this is their deep desire. The desire of their life is for righteousness. And what does he mean by righteousness? In the Bible, there are, in the New Testament, there are three kinds of righteousness that are talked about. There is legal righteousness, the righteousness before God. And this is the righteousness that comes by faith, by grace through faith. Legal righteousness is how am I declared before the judge holy and righteous in his eyes. And that happens as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But there's also in the New Testament and in the Bible, this idea of personal righteousness or moral righteousness. We talk about holiness or sanctification. Personal righteousness is living in a way that pleases God living in a way that seeks to obey his law by his spirit, by his grace, personal righteousness or moral righteousness. And then there is social righteousness. And social righteousness deals with things like justice and fairness and truth. Could we use a measure of that in our culture today? Justice and fairness and truth and honor and respect in family life. And it, it means social righteousness means treating people the way that God tells us to treat them and in a way that pleases God. And so question for us, do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Does this describe our desire? Do we long to be more like Christ? Do we long to grow in personal righteousness? Are there things in our life that we say we, we just can't, we, we no longer want to do those things or be exposed to those things because they don't help me to grow in righteousness. And they lead me away into what the world values. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do we hunger and thirst for social righteousness? Do we pray for social righteousness? Justice and truth and fairness. Do we work in our spheres of influence for righteousness? In our families, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our churches, do we work for and pray for righteousness? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for these things, for they will be filled. See, the hunger and thirst that the world preaches isn't ultimately satisfying. The things that the world trains us to want to pursue Money and perfect health and status and power and those sorts of things are ultimately elusive. We can't hang on to them. They're not going to, in the end, satisfy us. They're going to go away. They're going to go away. We saw last week, we heard the terrible news of this great basketball star who had everything the world says you need. And it was gone in a moment. Sunday afternoon. The things that the world says, this is what you need to hunger and thirst for and strive for, that goes away. But if you pursue 
righteousness, you'll be filled. You'll have a character that is fulfilling as you pursue holiness, as you pursue a life that is pleasing to God. We don't do it perfectly, of course. We need constantly to go back to that first beatitude and recognize our poverty of spirit. But we can grow in Christ-likeness as we stay close to him. If we move far away from Christ, then the values of the world and the things that the world preaches to us about what you need to strive for begin to skew our values and our vision. And so, brothers and sisters, here's what I'd like you to do this week and in the weeks ahead as we work through the Sermon on the Mount. Go ahead and take these with you and, or in your own time at home and, and read through these Beatitudes this week. And uh, read through the Sermon on the Mount in the, co- in the coming weeks ahead. And use them as a way to reflect on your own spiritual condition, on your heart before God. Thank God for the progress that he has made by his grace in your life. But admit the places where you need to grow. Am I poor in spirit? Do I have some brokenness in my life over my own sin? Do I mourn over that? And am I comforted by the forgiveness of God? Am I meek or am I the kind of person who feels the need to always be in control? It's hard for me to let go. I want to be in control because I'm not really trusting in God. Am I hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Trusting in the promises of God that ultimately this hunger and thirst will be satisfied. So use these as a springboard for prayer this week. Just close with this final thought that the the Sermon on the Mount really gets to our hearts, our heart before God, and then out of that heart, how we relate to other people. That reflects what's going on in our heart. So there's this connection between the heart and our character and our relationships. And it can't be divorced. How we treat other people and is a revelation, it's an unveiling of what's going on on the inside of our heart. And this whole Sermon on the Mount exposes us. It's, it's, it's radical heart surgery. If you work through this prayerfully and God looks at the heart. When I was in high school, there was a young man who was a uh, a star basketball player on our high school team. And he was popular because of his athletic ability. I was thinking about this because of Kobe Bryant. And um, he had seemed everything kind of going for him. And he was a great, great guy. But unbeknownst to all of us, including him and tragically him and his family, he had a heart problem. And so in the middle of the game, he collapsed. You know those stories of the high school athletes who did not know what was going on with their heart. And that was, that was it for Charles. And that was kind of the, our, in our small town, kind of our little Kobe Bryant moment. <laughs> it's like this guy had everything going for him. And look how fleeting life can be. But the point I want to make here is the heart wasn't healthy. To outward appearances, he looked good and had everything going for him. 
but the heart was not healthy. The vital organ was not healthy. And so what this Sermon on the Mount does is it exposes our hearts if we prayerfully meditate on what Jesus is teaching here. And we can bring our hearts to him and pray for health and healing. I pray that for you and for me as we go through this. Let's pray. Lord, I uh, ask that you would draw us close to you as we study this great teaching that has been preserved for us, these famous words that just echo throughout the centuries and, and call people to this adventure of growing in Christ's likeness. And it's people who have taken these words seriously who have had such a, an impact on, on the world and in their families and in their neighborhoods and in their lives. And so thank you for calling us to this adventure by your grace. Help us to remember that we are always spiritual beggars before you and we rely upon your mercy as we think about these things and we thank you for your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.